This is a wee bit of everything. The podcast that explores all things sport and teaching. Hello there and welcome to the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast with your hosts Lewis and Clark. Thanks for coming back to tune in to this week's episode. We really are amazed by all the support we have received from everyone so far. Our partner of the podcast is Premiership Experience who have played a big role in helping us develop. Premiership Experience offer fantastic sports tours within the UK and abroad so be sure to check them out on Twitter at Prem Experience. This is a professional learning platform where we get ideas and insights from like-minded professionals. Our vision is to inspire, to teach and to entertain. So let's get started with this week's episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. This week we are joined by Behaviour Advisor Tom Bennett. Tom is the author of Behaviour Management books, most recently Running the Room. We recommend you get your hands on this as this is something that Lewis and I are going to be doing as well. Tom is going to talk us through how to teach high quality behaviour and what common mistakes can be made along the way. Tom's going to also go over general hints and tips on how we can manage behaviour best in our classroom so that young people can learn as much as possible every time they come into our subject. So we hope you enjoy it as much as we will. So we'll get him on the show. Right, Tom, how are you doing? Welcome to A Wee Bit of Everything. It's great to have you on. How's things? Nice to be here. What, what an honour. We finally made it. Yeah, I know we've been back and forth with a few emails, but it's great to finally get you on and I'm looking forward to the, the episode. So thanks, for your, thanks very much for your time. So um, we know that you're on today uh, to talk about your, your knowledge and experience as a behaviour advisor and the work you've done to, to support schools. Um, so just before we get into that side of it, could you maybe, guys, maybe give us a, a brief rundown on your professional career to date? Yes, a professional career, as I laughingly call it. Um, I, start, <laughs> I started off as a, as a, so I went to university and did philosophy, which is like, you know, that's where all the big bucks are. And, and, and because of that, I ended up as a bartender. Um, and I did right, that okay. for several years in Glasgow. And, and, you know, I enjoyed it, but it was kind of, you know, it was kind of, I felt like I was going down a plug hole a wee bit. Came to London because I heard the streets were paved of gold. You know, I, I listened <laughs> to the mounds of Morn a few too many times. I came down and it was a bartender here. Wasn't that brilliant? And then I became a bar manager and, I became, and then I ran a nightclub in Soho for about six years. Well, wow. you know, obviously a kind of natural transition into teaching. Religious <laughs> studies. <laughs> uh, but no, listen, I really enjoyed it, but it was very much a young man's career and it was, it was very, it was full of villains. You know, so I thought I'd come to, I thought I'd come to a sector with fewer villains, and then I then I went onto Twitter and realised that I'd, I'd made the wrong choice. Um, <laughs> and I went, <laughs> so boom, boom. and I went to teaching because I saw one of those adverts that said "Use your head, teach," and I just thought, why why haven't I been doing? Everyone's used to say, "But you should always teach, you should always teach." And I did lots of training in bars and nightclubs and restaurants. You know, I was always the guy that trained people, so I thought, oh, "I'll try that." Loved it, absolutely loved it. Having said that, you know, it tore me apart. I became a teacher. I did that for fourteen years. I was rubbish at it for about. The first five, I was less rubbish for the last ten of it. Um, I did various kind of leadership roles, and then I kind of jumped ship and started to run Research Ed, which is my kind of my, my wee private baby, a non-profit baby, where we try to raise research awareness in the teaching community. And then I did various behavioural things. I wrote some books, and I eventually became the DFE's behavioural czar. You know, <laughs> the behaviour czar, which is you know yeah. literally a meaningless term, but you know, but, but I'll run with it, which is quite quite funky yeah that sounds, that's, that's the career I, I don't know if that's that's you know solid that, for you that's perfect i'm gonna be honest with you i, I quite like the, the idea of having a pub as well and running it so maybe maybe it might get back in touch with you when that day happens <laughs> like, advice. No, when, it, when it's fun it's hell of fun yeah <laughs> but when it's not fun it's not fun i'm not assure you of that so what, so what was the difference between glasgow and london then in terms of bartender being a bartender? Um, see i'm going back a bit now so you guys are about you know you guys are, are, are shockingly young so uh, when i started to bartend um this was back in oh my god this is 1990 something like that right and and bartending in those days was still there was still quite a strong spit and sawdust mm-hmm. uh, culture about in, in, in glasgow and that's not to, to decry there was lots and lots of you know boutique bars where you would see you know charlie nicholas and ian rankin and so on <laughs> 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 having a croissant and um, <laughs> 
Sorry, that's old school. <laughs> but, you know, I'm still quite new. And so we were involved in this kind of very Americanized style sales. So I came to London, and London, you know, London was, I mean, London always has been kind of more advanced in terms of its kind of service culture. There wasn't a really a service culture. This is, sorry, I'm going on a bit here. There oh, wasn't really. a service culture in Glasgow in those days. I mean, there was great service. Don't, you know, there's people mm-hmm. that were really nice to you. It was that kind of Scottish hospitality. But yeah. what there wasn't was this kind of, you know, the customer is king type attitude. Right. That was very new. And so Glaswegians didn't, you know, they didn't trust you if you said you got a free refill in your Pepsi, Pepsi Cola. <laughs> we're looking at a free refill. What, what, what's the catch? What's the catch? So they would sit there all day, you know, with endless, <laughs> endless. <laughs> Brilliant. Memory oh. lane. I'm sure you've got a few good memories of that you could tell as well. But um, so, so, oh so what was it you were teaching then when you were when you got into teaching? What subject or was it primary? Well, when, I came, when I came to London and I, I did the, what's called the PGCE, I don't know what it's called in Scotland, but the PGCE. PGDE. Just to be different. You know? Yeah, absolutely. There's probably a Gaelic version written underneath it, and, <laughs> which is absolutely fine, obviously. And. Um, the one year bridging course and I'm honest I didn't learn much on it and that's not because the people were bad the people were lovely but the course was really there wasn't much of a course there and so um, they said well what do you want to you know what what, what subject you want to teach and I said no I don't know and they said what's your your, your degree and I went philosophy and they went oh well you could do English I suppose or you could do RS and I I loved RS at school really enjoyed it I'm not particularly religious, but I you know, loved it. And, and they said, oh, well, we'll do that then. And it was great, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but it was a bit of a kind of a do one, see one, teach one. Because, you know, a degree in philosophy doesn't teach you anything at all about, you know, kosher food laws or, the, you know, the 5Ks or the pillars of Islam. You know, mm-hmm. that, you're as new to that as anybody else. And right. I, I find it quite shocking that you're allowed to be a teacher while knowing so little about that stuff. I caught up, but it was catching up. Yeah, yeah. Well, as PE teachers then, um, have you ever had a, a cover for a PE class? Have you ever? Yes, yes, many times. Um, I mean, wisely, n- never completely solo, because uh, I'd probably be breaking the law. But I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've supported a lot of PE lessons. We used to take kids to a climbing wall. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? I loved it, absolutely. You know, I, I would spend half my time trying to do the wall and mm-hmm. then make sure the kids were okay every 10 minutes. I think the most physical thing I did at school was uh, I used to run the Duke of Edinburgh trips. Oh, right, good. And that was brilliant. I mean, I cannot, I really, really enjoyed it because it really taught me a lot about behaviour. Because mm-hmm. you can't take a kid up a mountain until they know how to read a map and read a compass and, you know, how to, you know, not, you know, not, not set themselves on fire. And, yeah. you know, it's a lot of that behaviour, which is why I frequently, I look at PE, I watch PE lessons now. Uh, I mean, I'm asked to, I don't just turn up. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I um, you know, and, and I notice that people often say to me, "Who are the best teachers for behaviour?" There's no simple answer to that, but what you do often see is that people who do PE classes or or design technology classes or anything like that, classes where safety is paramount, mm-hmm. and also if they don't behave properly, there's no game. You know, without the rules, there's no football, for example, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So therefore, really thinking about how we conduct ourselves with one another is very much at the front of their minds. So I think PE teachers often think a lot more about behaviour in a way that they might not be conscious of. Yeah, that's, cool. uh, that's a good way of looking at it, I suppose. Well, it's a long way of saying it. I've never taught a PE lesson. <laughs> so that was useful. But we had someone on the podcast recently, um, Craig Brown, I'm sure. I'm sure they won't mind me saying his name. He was a former Scotland manager in the 90s. All right, yes, sir. Um, football manager. So he was, yes, he, he was saying that when you walk in... Uh, a dressing room, um, used to be a PE teacher as well, so when you walk into the changing room or a dressing room as a coach, um, they immediately pay attention to you. And mm. that's, a, that's a sign that you, you know, you've got the, you've got the attention of the class yeah. um, as well. So would, would you agree with that statement? Like if, when you walk into a class, is that the sign of a good teacher? Or would you say that there's I, more, more to it than that? I would, I would say that's an outcome of a good teacher. Yeah. The problem with that is this. That the reason why he's got that esteem, the reason why they've got that relationship is because of two things. One, he's taught them to behave like that. You know, he yeah. said he's, he said to them really explicitly and clearly, this is what I need you to do. And secondly, you know, as the boss or the coach of whatever, I presume, and, you know, forgive me, my football knowledge is... That's all right. <laughs> but, you know, I presume he can cut them from the team or he can be instrumental in cutting them from the team mm-hmm. really easily. Yeah, so definitely. Very much in their interest for, for them to behave, which means that he's got, you know, in the background, a really big uh, consequence power, you know, sanction, mm-hmm. sanction, penalty of, of, of exclusion to some extent. Yeah, definitely. And, there's that. and the third thing is, is that um, you're dealing with 
adults there, you know, with high levels of self-regulation, who understand the consequences of their action, who are professionals, who really want to achieve what they're all trying to achieve. You know, that's great, but that's a, quite a different paradigm from a classroom of, you know, of, of, of 32 12-year-olds who aren't too sure what subject they're in. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Aye, yeah, that's true. And hate you. And, and, mm. you know, and that's, that's a different paradigm. So the danger is, sorry if I'm going on a bit. No, you're fine. Cut, cut my gas off if you want. The danger is, is that somebody would watch someone like Craig Brown or the, the, the senior leader in a school and they walk in the classroom and the class just goes, whoosh, you know, it's quiet in a second. And the danger is that someone would look and go, what have they done? What did they do? Maybe they've just got a magic gift. No, there's no magic gift. They've, they've built that up over a long period of time. And people used to come see my lessons if I'd been with a class for two or three years. They'd come see my lessons and they would say, hey, you didn't do anything. You just asked them to do stuff and they did it. I said, yeah, but that took me years to get there with this yeah. class of, of, of headbangers. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So there's yeah a there, but you're, I mean, you're right in a way. Yeah, Louis and, and I debated about it, didn't we? After yeah. I said it after the podcast and we were saying... Yeah. You, but we didn't say it, and there was a great answer you gave us there. So, but Craig did he did mention what you said there. Tommy said they've got the, the managers ultimately have the power of choice, which you don't really have in in a school. Like you've got the power to select that team and drop players if if need be. Absolutely. Listen, there's t- there's two types of motivation that people commonly talk about: the intrinsic motivation, which is you do something because you want to do it, you believe it's right, and you know you're, you're making yourself do it. And then there's extrinsic motivation. That's when somebody else makes you do it. And you find in a classroom that you, you, you've got to use both. You know, because extrinsic, sorry, intrinsic is the best because you want people to do stuff because they want to do it, which means they'll do it when you're not looking because they think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, like taking the right route home. Like you just do it because like, it's just the right route. I know it is. Why would I go another route? You know, people just think like that. And then but in order to make people do that sometimes, to, to overcome their bad habits, you sometimes have to put a wee bit of pressure on them and say, you know, if you don't do this, you'll have to come back at the end of the day or you'll need to put away the equipment or something. Or you can use praise or whatever. The point is you're kind of prodding them a wee bit. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of very simple model. So you, you can never get people to behave completely just with extrinsic motivation because what you do there is you get very compliant people but who will disobey you the second you're not there. And you know, and you see that in classrooms a lot of the time. That's kind of like the prison warden mentality, whereby yeah. you know you've got a gun trained on them, so they'll bloody well behave. But no, they'll riot. <laughs> you want to build up the intrinsic, but you use the extrinsic motivation, the nudges, the prod, and so on, to encourage the intrinsic. Mm-hmm. And you get the intrinsic motivation by persuading people it's the right thing to do. So you see, there's a there's a kind of there's two pro. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm making I'm using my hands as a diagram. Sorry. <laughs> But it's brilliant viewers, you know, listeners. Um, so you use one to get the other, but you need both mm. at the same time. And, you know, I, I see great PE teachers doing this all the time. You know, they'll, they'll say to people, this is how we play the game. We want to have a great game, don't we? I know that you do too. I do as well. They'll talk, mm. they'll talk about the fact that, you know, this is how we play it. This is how you're going to get better. And you persuade kids to think, oh, this is good. This sounds interesting. This sounds fun. And, you know, so that's kind of the intrinsic motivation. And then you teach them the rules. And then you teach them the habits of the rules and you constantly challenge people when they don't follow the rules. So that's the rule. Oh, you, you broke that rule. Let's try that again. Nope, that wasn't a very good pass. Let's try that again. And you get people to practice the wee behaviours that make up good behaviour. And then once you do that over and over and over again, it becomes a habit. And that's when people start to do things because they think this is what I should be doing. This is how I pass a ball. This is how I, you know, this is how I trap a pass. This is how I hit a ball or whatever. Um, but then, after all that, if people still willfully disobey. In a, in a game, of course, you've got penalties and people can be benched and, and people mm. can be you know, reprimanded verbally and all, you know, there could be social penalties. Like people saying, oh, you know, you, you, handed, the ball, you handed them a penalty. You know, so there's a social penalty attached to yeah. that as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so you use both of those sides of the argument to get the behavior you want. But you don't, what you don't do is say to people, behave. Yeah. Because... Behaviour means so much to so many different people. I mean, good behaviour on a football pitch is very different from good behaviour for a, for a soldier or good behaviour for a fishmonger or something mm-hmm. like that. Fishmonger's still has been a while. Um, and, and so we have to define what we mean by good behaviour. Now, I come from, you know, I, I came from quite an unsporty family, right? I loved, I loved, uh, I loved athletics. I did, did well at athletics at school, but I didn't do well at team sports. And to this day, I still don't understand the rules of football particularly well, which I know will make you cast me out as a, as a, as a rebel and a heretic. But, but nobody ever in a PE class ever explained to me 
you know, things like, you know, the offside rule and stuff like that. It's never explained to me. So therefore, I used to kind of blunder through my PE lessons, making mistakes. And, and this assumption that you know how to behave in a PE get lesson. So I just made rabbit ears there. Right. Behave in a PE lesson um, is, is, a, is a big mistake. And, you know, first of all, you've got to teach the rules of the game, but you've also got to teach the acceptable conduct and acceptable standards and also the acceptable etiquette. You know, what, what does good play mean as opposed to, you know, acceptable play but still rough? Anyway, yeah. I'll go on a bit, but you know, that, no, that's a good way to look at it. I've never thought about it like that. And, and as a PE teacher, they have to obey and stick to the rules so the game obviously works. So I think bad behaviour stands out maybe more in a PE lesson um, because it's obvious because they're, they're not well, sticking the way, to the rules. It's funny you should say it, Clark, because I mean, I talk to a lot of teachers about this and I say to them, you know, are you struggling with behaviour? And they often say, oh, I wish I was a PE teacher because, you know, because they, they have it easy, right? Now, I know there's people listening to this podcast howling at, the, at their at their car radios, whatever, just now. <laughs> there is this assumption that you've got it easy. Why? I mean, you know why. You've heard this a hundred times. Because they love to play football. Yeah. Now, that's, mm-hmm. a complete, that's, that's a complete piece of mis- misinformation. Because yeah, A, totally. there's plenty of kids that don't like playing football. And B, there's plenty of kids who love a kickabout. But mm. when you ask them to do something they don't want to do, like, for instance, practice dribbling or something like that, they'll be just as resistant to that as the kid who's asked to practice, you know, number bonds or, or Pythagoras' theorem or something like that. You know, so whenever you ask someone to do something they don't want to do, they often push back and we call that misbehaviour mm-hmm. you know, because it's what we don't want them to do. So therefore it's misbehaviour. Yep. But the interesting thing is PE teachers have it pretty hard too. If you're a PE teacher and you don't mind accepting rubbish games of football where everyone's hacking at everyone else and the rules are just like a serving suggestion, if you don't mind just watching a kickabout, you can go back in the staff room at the end of your lesson and think, that was a really good lesson. Behaviour was great because you've because you've lowered your standards, hundred percent, yeah, to the underground. And it's just the same as a math teacher, an English teacher, who, you know, gets to the end of a lesson and thinks, "Ah, oh, well, you know, they all stayed in their seats. Fair play." <laughs> you know, Aye. it's it's the teacher push back on the kids and try to make them behave better than they normally want to. That's the hard thing. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get pushed back, and that's when you think, "Oh, I'm a rubbish teacher because they keep telling me they don't want to do it or whatever." But persistence is how you get through to them. Do you think it's just about just keep on keeping going with what you're with what you're actually doing and just eventually getting them to come round? Like, is it is that something that obviously, like you say, that makes you feel like you're a rubbish teacher? But it's is it like mainly kind of like trial and error? Is that just trying new things all the time, or is it just being constant drip feeding all those positive behaviours to get into those habits to eventually? Because you said before, like. Um, you've maybe had a class that's maybe taken years to get to that point. Like, is that yeah. literally true? Like, it's actually taken you more than a, a year to get them to behave to the standard that you actually have been striving for at the start? Well, certainly when I first started to teach. Yeah. I mean, the classes I took, I took over in, uh, you know, kind of primary seven level, or we would call it year seven down mm-hmm. Um And, you know, it took me two or three years to get them to the place I wanted to be because I was just starting out. The thing you want to try and avoid is trial and error. Yeah. And, and to be honest, that's a systemic failure. Of, of, of teacher training. I mean, not just in England, but internationally. I mean, I've seen this around the world. I suspect there's a wee bit of this in Scotland too, and that's not to decry Scotland, mm. but to say this is a very common thing. The teacher training and behaviour management is very, very weak. Yeah, it's very... I mean, I had a 45-minute behaviour lecture. I didn't get a whole load of it either, to be honest with you. No, neither did I. Whatever. But the idea is that, you know, if, you just te- if, you, if your teaching's great, they'll behave for you. What a load of bollocks that is. Yeah. <laughs> if the kids don't care then all of your caring and well-planned lessons will be dashed against the cliffs of their complete indifference. Mm-hmm. You know, I can bring their own lives with them and their mental health issues and their dilemmas and their trouble. Anyway, so I struggled for years and years. You want to avoid the trial and error thing. Mm-hmm. Because we, should, we should be at a better stage than that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, there's a lot we know about behaviour management that doesn't get shared very much and I can make it my life's mission to do so. Um, and that what I'm sick of seeing is new teachers thrown in the deep end and they say, work it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me so mad that people are forced into the situation because the only one that suffers is uh, everybody. You know, yeah. no, nobody wins in that situation. Mm-hmm. The idea that you're giving them autonomy to become professionals. You're essentially asking them to invent fire by themselves or reinvent the wheel. You know, I mean, some of them will get there. I got there. It took me six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, and I learned lots of bad habits on the way. And I had lots and lots of hard nights of the soul. Yeah, it's well-being as well, isn't it? The teacher well-being you need to think about. Absolutely. You know, if you want teachers to enjoy their job, mm-hmm. it can still be hard work. 
the hard work that's satisfying is completely different for your, for your mental well-being, for your mental mm -hmm. health. You know, working hard at something you love, mm -hmm. that's, that's, a, you know, that's a powerful... Uh, fulfilling, it, fulfilling, isn't it? It is. It's incredibly fulfilling. And I loved teaching. And I loved it. And I, and I remember getting to the point where it was always hard. But I, always, I loved every day. You know, I went, I went home thinking, I am satisfied with this. It wasn't pleasant. And I think people need to get the difference between pleasure and something being satisfying. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a father. I've got so two wee, wee children. I nearly said Bairns there. It must be your influence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the one that works in Fife. <laughs> okay, so I, I don't know if you get away with that in Glasgow. <laughs> well, you can if you're the Bruins, apparently. But anyway, moving on. Um, I don't know how they got away with it. And uh, where was I? Right, so I've got two children. And, you, you know, and sometimes you have to get up in the middle of the night to soothe them or something like that. And you wouldn't say it's pleasant. But, but you know you're doing the right thing. You know that it's, it's a satisfying thing to do. To know that you've done the right thing as a father or as a parent. And I think that's the difference. Understanding, to knowing that when you're flourishing in your role as a teacher, that's one of the most satisfying things in the world. But it doesn't mean it's fun. You mm -hmm. know, you could, you could, for instance, you could love playing football. But being good at football means, you know, staying off the Mars bars occasionally and getting up at six o'clock in the morning to get to the to get to the match or do the training. Not always fun. It's satisfying to be part of something that means something to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what teaching is like in many, many ways. Yeah, I, I agree, definitely. I, I've, I've had, you, like, have, you have those moments, like I'm only in my second year just now teaching and you certainly like, have those moments. That's what I feel I was speaking to Clark about. I was like, I'm never actually just like, kind of at that level just cruising along. I'm either like buzzing after like, a, a really good lesson <laughs> or I'm, I'm like, why am I even doing this job? Like if it's, if it's went yeah. terribly wrong or whatever. So it's... Um, that's, what, that's what I'm striving to get towards it's just having that kind of more balanced feeling yeah. about it if, you, if that makes somebody sense said to me, someone said to me it's a bit like boxing you're either punching or being punched that's a great way of looking at it that's a wee bit of a, a, wee, a wee bit of a violent metaphor I don't mean that it's a good analogy sometimes, it's, sometimes you're giving out and sometimes you're taking it but, but that's the game, you know, yeah. that's the game. And teaching was teaching eventually, you know, you can you can get far far more of the of the pleasure than the pain. I assure you that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a complex and challenging job, for sure. It is a complex challenging job, and I think it's it's not served well by the, the teacher training ecosystem right now. I mean, hopefully there's something getting better with that. I think people are waking up to the idea that behaviour management is something that can be taught, and there's a series of learnable skills, and that it takes a bloody long time to get to it, and you you will learn things on the job. But what it can't be is just something that, you know, people, people, people will say the daftest things about it. They'll say, oh, it's all about relationships. It's all yeah. about relationships. They stroke their chin and look into the distance. It's all about relationships. You know, and, you know, yes, it is. That's such a vague thing to say. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is people then go, what does that mean? <laughs> I know. It's, it's like you can't just make a relationship with someone. You can't just walk up to somebody and say, I'm attractive. Please love me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean... Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, present company accepted, I'm sure. But, you know, that's not, you build a relationship by getting to know them and by being, being trustworthy and predictable yeah. and by laying out your standards and what you stand for. You know, it's a lot of give and take and that's how you build a relationship. But that relationship is built on trust. Mm -hmm. and trust is built on structure and predictability, which means you've got to have predictable behaviours of your own and expectations of predictable behaviour from them. You've also got to marry that with kindness. You've got to yeah. be... You, be nice to them and I don't mean oh you're all so wonderful you know because kids mm. hate that as well mm -hmm. you know? but you've got to, you know you've got to show the kids that they matter to you and again that's different from making sure they always have fun you gotta make sure that they matter to you you know so so I, I mean I would always say to my classes listen I love teaching my subject I love teaching people at you I really want you to do well and I promise you I'm going to do my best to make sure that you do you know and and and, and I want this place to be a safe space I want you not to be bullied I want everyone here to be treated with dignity. I want everyone here to learn. You're going to learn today. You know, I would say, oh, <laughs> kids. And, you know, you get the kids saying, oh, that, that sounds quite nice. You know, a safe, dignified place where I'm going to grow and learn. And no kid ever says, no, I don't like the sound of that. Yeah. Once, you've said that once you've said so to them that they matter and mm -hmm. their learning matters, that's when you say, and in order for all that to happen, here's how we're going to behave together. And mm -hmm. that's when you've sold a wee bit. And the kids go, okay, now I see why we've got rules. Now I see how we're working with each other. Whereas if you just go in cold with the kids and say, right, shut up, these are the rules. Yeah. Don't think you like them, which does matter to kids. They, and worse, they don't think you care about them, which goes deep with them. And then thirdly, they just think that you're telling them off because you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. And they personalise it and, and they, you know, 
and they, they reject the values and the rules and so on. Whereas mm-hmm. if you sell to them, this is why we've got rules, this is why we're doing this. Kids will normally go, okay, fair enough. I understand. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just being able to articulate it well, isn't it? And just getting that across there. And I suppose laying that out right at the, at the very get-go with them. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the problem many teachers think is, they'll think, oh, I'll just try and teach and see how I get on. Yeah. You know, and you get this very reactive model of behaviour management where people think, oh, no, somebody's misbehaved, I better do something about it. Which you must, and there must be some kind of consequence, and it could be a positive one, a negative one, or a neutral one. Mm-hmm. But what, and so I'm very for responding to misbehaviour, but far better is to lay out your stall super early and say, this is how you're going to behave. Because, and I don't blame teachers for doing this, because if you're not taught any behaviour management, the most natural thing in the world for you to do is think, well, I'll just say hello and then I'll start teaching the stuff I'm supposed to teach them. Mm-hmm. that maths or PE or whatever. But what they need to do is before all that, they need to get the behaviour curriculum, mm-hmm. the conduct, mm-hmm. and also the value curriculum, this idea that this is, what, this is what we mean as a group. We are a group. I care about you. I care about you as a member of this group. Everybody matters in this group. Your behaviour matters to me. Your outcomes matter. If you've got a problem, I'll try and help you. You know, that kind of attitude really goes far with kids, but it's got to be laid out at the start. Yeah, Otherwise, no. kids think, you know, pushover. Yeah. Not all of them, but enough of them to make your life misery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. And kids just think, oh, this is, the, this is the land of do as you please. And children are natural egotists. You know, mm-hmm. as, as are we all. We all want to do what we want to do. But if you, if you let children do what they want to do, you know, they'll go to bed at three o'clock in the morning and, and uh, you know, have uh, marshmallow pizzas for breakfast. <laughs> so true. Every time I mention marshmallow pizzas, I'm always reminded that back in 1980, whatever, when I was at school, um, the local Asda used to do a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle pizza, and it was a marshmallow pizza covered in chocolate sauce. <laughs> and they, probably, know, they, they, probably, they, they probably deep fry that up here. Well, listen, I tell people <laughs> that, they go, no, that can't be true. I'd <laughs> say, oh, yes, it can be. What did, I, what, did I, what did I see the other day? This is totally off topic. It was calling the caterpillar cake deep fried. Oh, it must have been. It must have been. But. Well, there, used to be, there used to be a, a pizza and kebab shop just off Socky Hall Street, very near the art school. And they would do, a, it wasn't just a pizza and it wasn't just a kebab shavings pizza. It was a deep fried kebab shavings pizza. Oh, you that's know, a lot of the myths, a lot of the myths are true. I know they definitely, they definitely are. Iron brew pakora and all that. Iron brew pakora. Oh, that's not so bad though. Don't worry. Like I, I'd like, I would try it. I, I and Lewis would be driving into Glasgow tonight to get some. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of drooling now. <laughs> right. So um, that was a that was a really good um, sort of discussion there on you know behaviour management and you know how to achieve how to achieve it by being trustworthy, trusting. Um, yeah predictable i think that's a good point you've made because as lois was saying sometimes i'm the same you go up and down so it's trying to be consistent all the time with with your approach yes. um, so yeah. they know what's coming but i would like to get your opinion on on this i was taking part in some uh, attachment informed practice uh, cpd recently yeah. and they were talking a lot about like all misbehavior or behavior is communication so it's, it's a phrase often here i was just wondering um it's almost as if we need to accept that and then deal with it in a, restor- a restorative manner mm. and try, try to get a, a try to get to a, a positive outcome. So, would you agree that all behaviour is, is communication of a deeper need not being met by our young people? Oh, absolutely not. That's what a load of rubbish that is. Well, I mean, the thing is, I get into some trouble from people when I say this, but it's only because you know, I'm just an, I'm just a humble seeker of the truth. And the problem with that kind of these kind of axioms is that, is that you know there's, there's very little evidence to suggest that that's true. Let me take that apart bit by bit. You know, okay. so all behaviour is communication. I mean, it's one of those things that you could say. Well, I suppose it is in a way because you can learn something from all behaviour, but it doesn't mean they're actively trying to communicate something to you. I mean, in my very first lesson, very first lesson ever as a trainee, a boy walked in my classroom, started to deal skunk, which for the younger members of the audience is a form of marijuana. Um, and, you know, and I said, I said, could you put that skunk away, please? <laughs> he, and he told me to, fuck off. sorry, that bigger part. Sorry, it's fine. He told me to F off, right? You know, what was he communicating there? Well, he was, he was, he was trying to communicate that I should F off and get out of his face. You know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes behaviour is just exactly what it is. There's no mysterious, you know, uh, kind of trauma buried beneath it. Sometimes it is. But I'm going to suggest majority of mainstream misbehavior is not because of some kind of deep-seated trauma it's because people are people and they like to do what they like to do 
and it's practically their job description to challenge your boundaries as much as they feel like it until you make them realize they're in a place governed by structure and trust and, and, and compassion so i think the idea that it's all communication i think that's just uh it's such a woolly aphorism with so little evidence to support it and it's so contestable so there's that the second thing which i think is it needs to be challenged here is that misbehavior is the result of an unmet need i mean you've really given me you know the the the, the top two at the top 10 you know things which i reject in behavior management um an unmet need i mean what does that even mean there's an unmet, there's something that needs to happen i mean sometimes an unmet desire absolutely the people come to your classroom and doesn't want to work and it's just because they're not feeling like working that day because they're you know they're lazy and you say look you know janice you got to do some work today she goes nasa i'm not having it sorry because that's a, a cockney classroom nasa i'm not having it <laughs> um shit scotsman and um you know if she says something like that then i don't go oh you know what need do i need to meet here hmm you know the need is that she needs to go on with her work and stop being cheeky you know the need is that yeah. she's learned that you've got to be nice to people and treat them with dignity that's what she needs so yeah. that's the need and the, basically the, the, this is a completely blurred the lines between needs and wants and just equated them as if they're not they're not the same thing you know and so, and so for instance it, it is re, it is relevant to say that a, a child with Tourette's for example you know if they swear in a classroom it's not their fault it's a neurological atypicality so what you don't do is you know you don't give them a detention for it if they swear you know mm. they need that kind of accommodation i would i would absolutely I, I agree with that yeah but that's very very different from somebody who's just in a bad habit you know, it's rude. Do you, you think that lazy like everyone else? Uh-huh. Do you think that's like almost setting kind of setting them up for a failure in later life? And if that's the way we approach it all the time, and of course, can I, so I'm going to jump in here because I want to say this absolutely yes. This idea that all behaviour is communication is a result of an unmet need is normally espoused by people who could not run a classroom of challenging thirteen-year-olds. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be quite clear about that. It's you know the vast majority of people who expose this type of things are people who deal with children in very boutique circumstances. You know, very very small groups. You know, in behavioural units, or we would call them pupil referral units, or special schools, or behavioural schools, whatever you want to call them. You know, or in one-to-one psychotherapy or counselling. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what I've noticed is in therapeutic contexts, if you go to a, a school or a unit for children with you know adv- you know very advanced difficulties, that therapeutic approach is very important. You know, that's when you have to start asking, you know, what's really going on here? And that's when you start to find out things like trauma and bullying and abuse and mental health issues and neurological difficulties and addictions and so on. Absolutely. Hmm. You know, that, that approach is much more useful for children in a boutique circumstance. But in a classroom of mainstream children, absolutely not. Because all you do is teach children that if they're upset, it's okay to tell someone to F off. Yeah. If they're not feeling it that day, it's okay to teach them to F off. And what you're doing is you're disempowering children then. You're teaching hmm. them that it's okay to be rude or lazy or cruel mm-hmm. to other people because, you know, the head's not quite in the right place. Absolutely the wrong way to teach. I want to teach children, even when you're feeling a wee bit, you know, angry or a wee bit down or you're not feeling the work, you've got to try. Mm-hmm. That's how you help people to become better versions of themselves. And if there is something, you know, more mysterious and, and, and more challenging, more fractured going on in their lives, absolutely investigate that. But in the first instance, for the vast majority of children, that's a very, very, very counterproductive approach to take. What if, off my soapbox now. No, you're all right. What if it's, see, like you're saying, like obviously telling someone to F off and that's not the right way to go about things and that's that's blatant disrespect and obviously that's just a no-no. But what if it's something like a child that's like super body conscious or has like really bad anxiety in, in a PE context yeah. and you're doing like an activity like cross country or something like that? What's your kind of, what would your thoughts be behind that? Do you think that's more like a... Absolutely. I think the, the only mistake that people make here is when they think that everything can be sorted with sanctions. Yeah. I, I am very pro-sanction. I think sanctions are a very useful part of your behavioural system. Uh, in the same way, I think speed cameras and parking tickets are a very useful part of a road behavioural system. You know, I mean, you might not like them, but, but try running a road system without them. Yeah. But, but that's also not the main way you get good behaviour. If you want good behaviour on the road, you teach people to drive. Right? Maybe you have a wee certification exam of some type at the age of 17. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you get your, your, your license to drive, your pen license. Now, I would suggest that when you're in any cl- classroom or school environment, teaching the behavior in advance is really useful. So you teach them what's expected of them. You teach them how to do it. So it's yeah. so clear to them. And if you've got people, anyone who struggles with it, where you try to treat, treat behavior like a curriculum and say, right, that person's struggling with this behavior, I will give them some extra teaching, which might be more one-to-one focus 
It might be some pastoral conversations. It might be some discussions about ways you can accommodate that until they get better. Yeah. So you try, but if it's just something like, you know, um, shine, you know, hyper shyness or, or sort of aversion to, you know, being getting changed or something like that, you got to respect that mm-hmm. and to help them find ways through it. You can't just shout at them and say, get used to it. This is what yeah. you know, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the, the monoplanar approach, but you work with them. And if they, and if they understand what to do and you've given them lots of opportunities to practice it and get better at it and you know they can do it mm-hmm. when they deliberately don't do it that's when you use things like sanctions yeah but if they're not but if they're not doing it because they're struggling with it well then you would no more give a child like that a sanction than you would give a child who couldn't add up a sanction for not adding up yeah you would say, right okay let's go over these number bonds again because i can see you're not quite there yet mm-hmm. that's the way we treat behavior in school whereas i mean when i went to school i had some PE teachers who were I mean, I think it's I think it's long ago enough for me to be honest with this. They were absolutely horrible to me because mm-hmm. I wasn't very sporty, and you know, and they treated everything I did as misbehaviour because because I, you know, I couldn't run very fast. And I remember just I remember just hating them, thinking I'm doing my best here. <laughs> cough, cough, wheeze, wheeze, and yeah, they need to teach think, you how to run faster, oh, though, don't they? What's well, that? They have to teach you how to run faster as well. Like they well, can, absolutely. I think it really. Uh, sorry to go back to PE here, but I think it really used to kind of bother me about PE when I was a kid. And I think it's massively changed since then. And incidentally, I had some lovely PE teachers as well. I uh, just want to mention that. Um, is that there wasn't a lot of emphasis on how to get fit enough to do the type of things you were supposed to be doing in PE. It was just mm-hmm. just do them. Now, as Daisy Christalulu famously writes, you don't tell a couch potato to become a marathon runner by saying. Go and run some marathons. You know, you get you get them to 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 you know to oh, up. bars and, and do, do a bit more walking, and you know you take it step by step. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and just as a wee anecdote here, when I was about fifteen, I remember being, I was how fed up I was getting criticised at PE all the time. So I remember uh, in the summer term and through summer, I took up a a, a training program and just went jogging three miles a night and did you know a child's version of an aerobics workout. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I was much healthier, much fitter. And I ran, you know, one of the fastest times in the cross country the next season. And I was so proud of myself. I was like, look at that. I was, you know, I was jumping like Rocky on the steps of the Philadelphia Library. And the PE teacher looked at me for a second. He looked at my time and he says, well, obviously you weren't trying last year. And I just thought, you, <laughs> you bastard. I, you know, absolutely. You know, but things have changed then. You know, this, was, this was the olden days. Brilliant. Yeah, so it's almost like taking a, a step-by-step approach then to to teach the, the habits that you're looking for in your class because absolutely you know yeah. i mean how do you get better cross country without someone saying right let's let's start off with some you know some light jogging with lots of breaks mm-hmm. and stuff like that I, mean, I, I, I just did the couch to 9k thing over lockdown because that's what you do apart from make banana you make banana bread put the weight on and then do the couch to 9k <laughs> and and i loved it i absolutely loved it you know and, and i know it's not everyone's cup of tea i know some people think it's a wee bit easy but it was just right for a, a middle-aged man like me that needed to lose a stone I, you know, it was, I was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed it. And I felt successful every time I did it. You mm-hmm. know, that's, I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm teaching you guys to suck eggs here because I know you know how to do this. No, no. But that kind of approach is massively underused in schools, I think. The, you know, let's, let's treat behaviour like a curriculum. Let's teach you the habits you need to get better at things. Mm-hmm. You know, and, get, and, be, and be really supportive. So if someone's chronically shy, you know, you don't bark them into it. You can still offer a bit of challenge. You can still say to them, come on, let's try this today. You know, this is the day we've been thinking, you know, we've been building up to this and I'd be really proud of you if you do it. You know, you still offer a constructive, positive challenge. But what you don't do is say, you know, if you don't do this, you're weak. <laughs> Aye. No, no, not at all. Aye, definitely. It's, about, it's just trying to get them to go around the whole spiel about it. it's, it's good to push you the, like your comfort zone and all that sort of stuff. And Yes, there's yes just like, absolutely. Take them, to the com- take them to the edge of their comfort zone but teach them how to get there. Yeah. And then when they're near there, you say to them, Oh, look, just over there. There's somewhere just beyond your comfort zone. Do you think we could try going over there? Yeah. And you, and you, and you hold yeah. their hand when you do so. But then so, see when they do it, it's just like revolutionary. Like they absolutely, like they're, you can see they're proud of themselves when they actually Oh, well, things they thought they never could do. Before. I mean, I never thought I could run for 30 minutes nonstop. Yeah. Right, you know, hey, I did it. Hey. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think as a PE teacher as well, like, we're in the art of persuasion. You know, try to persuade them to have a better yeah. relationship with physical activity and physical education. So... Well, I mean, the, the, the thing with PE, which I think is really interesting, and which some subjects don't get, is that, you know, you're also, as you say, you're not just dealing with a subject, you're also dealing with the student's relationship with eating, mm-hmm. with the relationship with sleeping, with the relationship with exercise in general, you know, and the relationship with their body. You know, there's so many other kind of therapeutic considerations to take into account. 
although having said that, I mean, there are still these considerations in other subjects like maths, you know, people, you know, the relationship with numeracy and numbers and adding up and getting things wrong in front of everyone, you know, it's, these are complex things too. Yeah. Definitely. Hey, well, Tom, that kind of brings on to my next question then. So if so, what would you like any advice be if someone has a challenging class with say, like a bulkage student, so that maybe like seven or eight displaying some challenging behavior, what advice would you give them to manage this situation so the, the better behaved pupils aren't disadvantaged? I would just permanently exclude them all. <laughs> get them out. Just get them, done. out. get them out and just teach the nice kids. That's the caricature. Um, if you're a new teacher and you've taken over a new class, first thing you do is you lay out your stall. But you do, and you think about how you're going to talk to people. So I mean, I gave you a little script earlier on. Mm -hmm. When I got a new class, I always used to say, I look forward to teaching you. You know, I love my subject. You're going to do well, but you're going to have to work for this. And, you know, I would take people through that. Um, so that's the, so that's the beginning. You know, you set because as you just mentioned there, Clark, behavior management is ninety five percent persuasion, five percent compulsion. Mm -hmm. You start off with the persuasion, and you say, and you say, you know, this, these are my these are my rules and routines. This, this is how we're all going to get on with each other. You know, that's how you sell it, and then you get them to sit down in in the seats that you've chosen because that's a really subtle way of asserting a very non-aggressive level of dominance. You know, that this is my room with my rules, but it's for everyone's benefit. But it's my room, my rules. And, and then you stick to it as much as you possibly can. And I, would and I would literally spend the first lesson, if you're in secondary, maybe the first lesson, if you're in a primary, maybe even the whole day, um, going over the rules, the etiquette, the behavioral norms, the standards and the routines that you expect of them and keep telling why. I, I honestly, I, wouldn't, I would barely teach them a, a, you know, a fact or, a, mm. you know, or anything to do with the, the, the unit that you're doing uh, in that first lesson. I would talk, I would talk about nothing but conduct. And, and values and your etiquette and so on. I mean, you don't, but you can thread in the subject too, obviously, you know, but, but, but I see some schools take a whole week to do this with kids and, you know, you see the dividend, but you, you really front load all your norms and expectations and also your consequences. Yeah. You tell kids that if you behave like this, then this will happen. Not because I don't like you, but because I want you to do well. And you sell it like that. And then here's, here's the magic ingredient. You stick to your guns until the stars burn cold, you know? And, you, and you, what you don't do is you don't, you don't think, oh, you know, I've got to try and make them my friends. They don't need a tall pal. You know, they've, they've got pals who are tall. What they need is, is an adult and they need a teacher. And it's very difficult if you're a young teacher in particular, particularly if you're teaching um, children, uh, you, know, in, in, you know, 17, 18 years old. You know, to, to, it's very difficult sometimes to differentiate yourself from them. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, I think the, the key thing here is they need you, they, they need you to be a grown-up. Mm -hmm. And they might push against you, and they will, but they need you to be a grown-up, and that's much different from them liking you. And here's the weird thing. If you stick to your guns and show them that you care, or hold them to a high standard, and constantly, constantly challenge them when they don't meet that standard, and I mean constantly, that's not what I asked. That's not what I asked. That's mm -hmm. not what I'm going to have to see you at the end of the day. If you do that, they probably will like you in a weird way. It's, it's, yeah. it's the hardest thing, because they'll think, oh, there's a teacher who knows how to teach. They don't like teachers that let them away with murder. Mm -hmm. They don't like teachers that cave in. They don't like teachers that are hard nuts one day and, and, and you know, and marshmallows the next. They like teachers who are consistent. Yeah, I think um, because, because there's so much talk about building relationships, then I think that then affects you as a teacher and how you deal with behaviour. Because then you don't want to, you feel as if you don't want to sanction them sometimes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's a difficult situation that's to find yourself in. Clark, I, I, you know, you'll find nobody greater than I in my disparagement of, of teacher training sometimes. And there's some great teacher training out there, school-based and HE-based. I just want to say that before, you know, anyone writes into your blog, your, your podcast. Um, there's some great stuff out there. But the number of times I see people in ITT saying things like, oh, behavior management, oh, it's all about relationships. It'll take some time to build it up. Good luck with it. You know, and incidentally, all behavior is communication. It's an unmet need. And you just get these, you, you've, you've hobbled new teachers because you've left them with these kind of vague, meaningless things. And they think, oh, am I not allowed to tell them off? Or am I not allowed to tell them what to do? Or shall I tell jokes or something? You know, it just, it's just so <laughs> awful that these teachers have been made to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. It was all about relationships. Well, what does that mean? I know, you end up uh, stuck in a different <clears throat> situation, don't you? I know, I know. It's so true. It's like, it's like saying to somebody, you know, go make that woman fall in love with you. What do you mean? Well, what does that even mean? What? How? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> but these are just the things you just mentioned there, but are just things that I wish I'd kind of 
known at the start. Like I did, we did obviously get taught that, like to lay out your stall and all that at the start. Like that was all very good information that was on my PGDE, and that's what I that's what I did at the start. But I think my mistake was just trying to like having all these expectations and all that, and just not articulating it in such a simple way, so that it it makes life easier for me and it makes life easier for the pupils to understand what you're rather than just rhyming off all these expectations, which I think is where I went wrong. But I really like the idea of spending full lessons at the start on conduct and just oh, really absolutely. driving that home rather than I never I never assume a child can do something that you find easy. Yeah. You no, know, I mean I, I talk often about the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge is this phenomenon whereby if you're very good at something it's very hard to to remember how hard it is for people who aren't. Yeah. You know, so I mean I can I, you know I write books um and then somebody makes them literate. But I write books so I can write, you know, I can read. But I, but until a few years ago I didn't really know how to teach reading. You know, because because I find it so easy. I was like, well, how, how do you teach reading? How do you teach long division? It's a really hard thing to teach. You know, it's almost as if teaching is a skill. Who knew? Fancy. Mm. And, and when it comes to things like behaviour, I mean, we're expert behaviours because we're good at it. We're grown-ups with professional careers and so on. We know we can we can be patient and wait our turn and put our hand up and, you know, not shout out and stuff like that. But some children find these things very difficult. So rather than assume they know how to behave the way we want them to behave, we assume that they're children and some of them might not know yet. Fancy that. Mm-hmm. and we teach them exactly what we want to do and don't be vague don't say I need you to behave say this is what good behaviour means so when I want you to queue up I need you to stand there and I need the volume at this level not that level and I need you to be dressed and ready to go or not dressed and ready to go or you've got to have gone to the shower first or you've got to be standing in that part of the pitch or you've got to have got the equipment from here but be super specific about it otherwise you're condemning them to, mm-hmm. to their own lack of knowledge and some kids might know what you mean you know, they might have, you know, had a similar educational phase or they might have been lucky enough to be taught the behaviour of different parts of their lives. And some children haven't. So you're basically creating this enormous gap, this achievement gap between children, which just gets bigger and bigger as the children get older. And you exacerbate the disadvantage gap because normally high levels of socioeconomic disadvantage correlates very strongly. It's not a causation, it's a correlation mm-hmm. with... Um, more behavioural issues at school and it's usually through things like you know the, the, the children have had less advantaged uh, socialisation processes and so on not always but sometimes and more often than not it's not just about money obviously there's a lot of perfectly well behaved children from being a very poor background so the, the point is this is that if you are interested in closing the disadvantage gap then you teach them the behaviour that they need in order to flourish at school mm-hmm. and when you do that you close the gap that makes complete sense problem. doesn't it you know? <laughs> but I, I wish I wish I'd been told that and stuff. Uh-huh. So my job is now to tell other people. So is this what your mission is then? Is to try and have like teachers better prepared for going into like early teacher, early career teachers? Yes, I mean to, to be honest, um, it's what get, it gets me out of bed and sometimes keeps me awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm so 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 driven by this this idea that I had such a rough time when I was a new teacher. And a lot of it wasn't particularly any one person's fault. It was just the fact that I hadn't been taught to do the job I was supposed to do. Yeah. You, you put it like that, it's madness. I mean, airline pilots get taught how to fly, fly a plane before they have to fly a plane. Mm-hmm. And you know, accountants and actuaries and welders get taught how to use all their equipment and tools of their jobs before they start the job and on, on the job as well. Mm-hmm. But, but teachers get so little. They get so little. And I get so maddened when people get all this theory. The theory is great, but that's more for the masters. Yeah. New teachers, new teachers, beginners, novices need foundational material. Mm-hmm. They need basic instruction about how you manage the behaviour of a classroom. They need basic content knowledge. They need basic pedagogy. What they don't need are, you know, 400-page treatises by 19th century philosophers on, on the, the goodness of man. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, I, I just mm-hmm. find that maddening that, that people get so fixated by 19th century philosophy. And that's your behaviour management. I mean, God, good God. It's like, it's yeah. like, reading, it's like reading Genesis in the Bible. <laughs> you have to be a guide to astronomy or something. Like, you know, it's, kind of, it's not what it's for. Mm-hmm. But it can yeah. be the, <clears throat> on you go. Sorry. On you go. I'm saying it can be the case that you get, like, and you starting off, you get put in an absolutely fantastically well-behaved school already that the, the pupils don't, they're, they're no problem at all. And then maybe mm-hmm. you don't really need to worry about that side of things as much. You know, is that... Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, listen, when I... I mean, I wrote a report for the Department for Education a few years ago. It was called Creating a Culture. And it's, it's available to download online viewers and it's free. Mm-hmm. It's a laugh a minute. What's it, what's it called? It's called Creating a Culture. Creating a Culture. And I wrote it for, teacher, for teachers and leaders. So it's written in a more accessible language than most official documents. 
and there's pictures and everything, so it's brilliant. Love it. Uh, um, so I nearly said, and there's pictures, and that's for the PE teachers. Uh, I knew that, <laughs> quite frankly, I wasn't worth living if I say that. <laughs> if an RS teacher can't have a dig at a PE teacher, then I don't know what I'm going to do. No, it's only worth thick skin. Even, even the way <laughs> modern studies teachers looks down on us. Anyway, moving on. The, um, what, was, what, was, what was I talking about? I've lost myself. The creative culture. The what? So we looked at about 200 schools, which had, you know, which had challenging demographics, but had great behavior. We wanted to find out what they were doing to get the great behavior. You know, I mean, some, we had some ideas about what would happen, what, but we wanted to see what they were going to tell us. And what we didn't do is we didn't look at private schools and grammar schools and schools with very, very fortunate socioeconomic demographics. That's not to decry these institutions. There's plenty of great teaching going on in these places. You can learn different things from, you know, eating and rugby and all the rest of it. I mean, you can, you really can. But I wanted to find out what people were doing when they didn't just have the luck to have really well-behaved children. Because I'm tired of going to schools with lots of really well-behaved children and them telling me, not only, not only do we have good behavior, but we're really good at behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't get me wrong, sometimes they are, but more often than not, they're just really fortunate. And I get tired of people who don't teach challenging children saying, oh, I know how to do this when they've never done it. And I get tired of members and le- people in leadership and ad- admin who don't teach challenging classes or mm-hmm. have very light timetables or no timetable at all, who, you know, who think this would be and, and who get automatic status and respect because of the position. I get tired of them telling me, oh, the behavior here is terrific, when they never see what they don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd much rather talk to the new teacher. I'd much rather talk to the supply teacher, the cover teacher. I'd much rather talk to the teacher with a full timetable who gets all the bottom sets. I want to talk to that teacher, and then they can tell me what they think of the behavior in the school. And I listen to them. And I listen to the people that can take those classes and teach them. Mm-hmm. You know, and the classes listen to them. And the classes love them. And the classes thrive. That's the people I listen to. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think just what I was going to say earlier was come back to the lack of uh, CPD on behaviour management for early, t- early career teachers. You're almost setting them up for that kind of setting of what Lewis was saying at the start, like trial and error, don't you? Like kind of just learning on the job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, do you want te- if you want teachers to leave the profession, keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> if, you teachers, if you want teachers to not like the job, keep doing what we're doing. If you want them to burn out, keep doing what they're doing. If you don't care about the mental health, keep doing what you're doing. If you're not that bothered about children doing well at school, but you just want to satisfy your own ego that you've the, 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 of, of the platitudes that you've convinced yourselves are true, if you believe all that, then fine, just let's, let's just keep doing what we're doing. If you want children to flourish and thrive and do well and succeed at school, if you want uh, teachers to love their job and to stay, if you want teachers to become an attractive profession, if you want to solve the recruitment problem, focus on behaviour. Yeah. Not just in a kind of punitive, right, you're in trouble now, I'm going to hurt you a lot way. But in the ways I've described, you know, really make it a thing that we think about and talk about all the time. And don't succumb to, as I say, 19th century philosophy or uh, therapeutic babble. Yeah. That kind of brings up my next question then, Tom. So I was listening to your, your podcast with Darren Leslie, who's a, a PE teacher in the same, yes. authority, the same authority as me. And um, I found it really interesting on the whole kind of idea of scripting your responses. And it's something that yeah. I, again, wish I had known and something that I think would have been very, very useful for me as well. Um, but this is obviously a, a useful approach to take to ensure you are consistent. Can you give us some like, practical examples that you've seen work really well and how this might help minimise disruption? Yeah, sure. I mean, can, can I give a parent example? Because this is quite an easy one. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you're phoning home uh, and you, you're you upset because the behaviour's been bad, it's very easy to say the wrong thing because when you're under pressure, when you're stressed, loads of your cognitive biases come into play mm-hmm. and you normally make bad decisions based on the fact that you're quite stressed, you're not thinking very straight. Um, and one of the things I realised very early, early on is that the, thing, the type of misbehaviour you encounter is, is, is quite, it's quite frequently the same. Mm-hmm. You know, as a teacher, you, it's, it tends to be the same 10 or 20 things. Somebody's late, someone's rude, someone's lazy, someone forgets their equipment. But, you know, whatever, it's, it's, it's not infinite the number of things that can go wrong. And so the, the wisest thing to do is to pr- prepare for that and to script what your response will be in advance of needing to do it. Now, that script can be physical, like this is what I will do. So if a child comes in late to the classroom, to ask yourself, what am I going to do? Rather than just think on the spot, 
oh, I'll try and think of something clever and funny to say, ask yourself, what will I actually do? And it might be something like, I'll ask him to sit down and deal with it later. Or maybe your script is, I'll ask him to wait outside. Or maybe the script is, I'll challenge him in front of the class. Or maybe the script is, I'll ask him to see a note, whatever. You have your own script. It's not to me to what your script is. But you have your own script. There's lots of good scripts you could have. So you're ready and prepared and you just do it, which means you lean back on your prepared script before you have to think, oh, what shall I do now? And you also script what you're going to say as well. Mm -hmm. A script isn't a straitjacket, it's a climbing frame, it's a rocket launcher, it gives you a skeleton. You can, you can amend it, you can, you can, you know, you can adjust it depending on circumstance, but particularly for new teachers, scripts are very, very useful. And if you're phoning a parent, for example, I used to script what I would say to them, and I would write down the three things I needed to say. And I would usually use a script along the lines of something like, um, is that, you know, is that, is that Ryan's mum? Because it was always a kid called Ryan. Right? <laughs> um, it's the English version of Shuggy. And, um, <laughs> I don't know if there are still shuggies these days. Again, okay. um, I've got a minute to talk about Ryan's behaviour. Listen, he can be a great kid, and his lessons last week were ter terrific. He's let himself down a wee bit this week, and I need your help getting him back on track. Have you got a few minutes to talk about that? You know, I, I've never, I've never had a parent react badly to that because mm -hmm. you basically say, "Your kid matters to me." Yeah, you love them, so do I. Right, he's let himself down a wee bit. Can you help me? You know, th that kind of language goes so much further than Ryan. Is that Ryan's mum? Your child was disgusting today. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're a bad parent. Mm -hmm. You know, so you script what you're going to do in advance of doing it. Now, you can't script everything, but you can script the most common things. Yeah, it's such a great way of getting ready for what do you do when somebody doesn't have their kit? What do you do when someone doesn't, you know, um, doesn't try hard enough? What do you do when somebody's late to the lesson or whatever? Just ask yourself in advance, write it down, talk about it with a peer, yeah. you know, but codify it in some way that you can understand what it is before you need to use it. And it's such a more sensible way of, of approaching behavior in the same way that an airline pilot will do however many hours on a flight simulator. You know, you, you, you prepare for the situation as much as possible before you encounter the situation. What you don't do is walk into, walk into battle and all of a sudden it's the first time you've ever seen bullets flying about you and you panic and have a heart attack. You know, you, you, you prepare as much as you can. Yeah, we can, we can practice it, Lewis. We can do these scenarios. I'll go to the pupil. You can... Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I offer. I offer, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose that kind of increases, like, the, the consistency as well, doesn't it? Between... Yes. Of, of yeah. you. Like, makes you a more consistent teacher, a more consistent person. And, um... Yeah. Right, so moving on, then, to the, the final question of the sort of main part, and then it's just a, it's just a quick fire round after that. So... Uh -huh. Just wrapping it up. Um, so, I'd like to get your opinion on this, uh, Tom. Uh, you've obviously been a teacher and you've seen a lot of teachers when you've been supporting them in schools for behaviour. Um, what would you say makes a high quality teacher? Just keep it short. There's <laughs> a challenge. It's been an easy one. Actually, no, I can answer this quickly. Okay, there's been a lot of research done into this, particularly um, the work of people like Robert Marzano in America and so on. But this, this chimes with what I think anyway. Uh, I tell you what makes a high quality teacher. Really, really, really high standards and high expectations. I say really high, not, not brutally high, but very high. I, I don't believe in the zero tolerance type thing. Very, mm. very high standards, though. Like mm. higher than any of the children in the class. Mm. And on the other side of that, very, very high levels of compassion. And again, I say very high, not 100%, because you can't just endlessly forgive people for things. You've got to show kids that you're a bit of a hard ass, but that that, you ma that they, uh, they matter to you and you care about mm -hmm. them. If you can convince children of those two things, they will walk over broken glass for you. But if they think you're too strict but not compassionate enough, they'll think you're just a hard ass. And if you think you're too compassionate without being strict enough, they'll think you're a pushover. And it's that sweet spot in the middle with having high levels of both. So very demanding and very supportive. Demanding but supportive, yeah. I, I wish you'd... I'm going to steal that. That's a great phrase. Demanding <laughs> <laughs> support. Brilliant. Brilliant. Great well, Tom, that kind of finishes the, the main bit of the podcast off nicely then. So we've always got to be quick fire round through a bit of fun with all of our by guests. Way, by the way. We do. So, number one, if you could have a giant billboard anywhere, what would it say on it? Oh, this this is easy. Um, my brother gave me a beautiful poem. I, I was, I, I'd had a really hard time teaching. I was really down, really depressed. And my brother came along and he gave me this massive poster and it just said, Alive. That's all it's alive. I've got it on my wall still. It's brilliant. And it, I, I hate to be all kind of Twitter inspirational here, but it really, I found it inspiring. Mm -hmm. like, can I have a second answer for this? Yeah. Right, easy peasy. Um, there used to be a bar in, in uh, Great Western Road. It was called Chimichungas. Right? It was a big, mm -hmm. it was a big, big student university bar. 
older listeners will remember this. And there was a, a there was a, a a frame in the wall, and it was it was about three meters by three meters. It was enormous, and all it said this enormous picture. It said, "Take it easy, take mm. it easy." I did, I, I, and I was I was was quite warmed by that. So that's my two billboards. Brilliant, love it. Number two, which people or books have had the greatest influence in your life? You can do um, one or the other. It's up to you. Sure. Okay. There's 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 two. Then I mean, one of them is a kind of personal one, which is a children's book it's called the once and future king by th white and it's a it's a modern i say modern it's a 1940s 1950s uh read a take on the arthurian legends and it, it, it stayed with me and i've reread it throughout my life and you know I've, I've loved it and learned from it every time i read it the second book which is a bit more relevant hmm. is um is uh, daniel williams why don't students like school right uh, everybody should read that every sorry, every teacher should read that it is a, such a succinct um, but brilliant summary of what mm. psycho, uh, psychology, cognitive psychology in particular, can tell us about teaching and learning. Yeah, you're not, like school. Brilliant. You're, you're certainly not the first person to, to mention that book as well. Oh, right. Definitely need to get my hands on. Um, final one then, what top three tips would you give to a teacher just now to help promote positive behaviour in your class? Right, top three tips. Uh, number one, know what behaviour you actually want to see because we don't think about it. We, don't, we, we often think about the behavior we try to prohibit, but we don't think what good behavior means. So ask yourself, what do I want to see? What do I, what do I need them to do? Number two, teach them the behavior, don't tell them the behavior. I mean, you've got to tell them as well, but you treat behavior as something to be taught, which means you use all your pedagogy about it. Mm -hmm. Number three, get them to practice the behavior, get them doing it. So if you want children to line up or put the equipment away or whatever, to explain to them, teach them what it is. And then get them to do it and then treat that as a learning activity like you know like assessment for learning well this is you know assessment for behavioral learning you watch what they do and you give them feedback and say right that was good let's try it again mm -hmm. in the same way that you would practice a, a tennis swing or, or passing a ball there's a great line some people say practice makes perfect well doug lamov famously says no that's not true perfect practice makes perfect mm -hmm. you know if you practice something badly you'll learn it badly yeah but if you but if you insist that someone does it right no that's not quite right let's keep trying it until you get it right and then let's keep doing it. You overlearn mm -hmm. it. That's practice. That's real practice. So those are my three tips. Brilliant. I can really think about that with uh, one of my classes where they're taking the goals away and they're just all dismantling. I've, I just expect them to know how to put the goals away. So it's something I think we can definitely practice. We do not know how to put the goals away. No, definitely not. But thanks, thanks very much for, for coming on this morning. Thank and you very much. Time, Tom. It was an absolute pleasure to speak no, to really you. Nice to talk to you guys. Really nice to meet thanks, you. Thanks, Tom. Stay tuned for this week's takeaway messages from the boys at A Wee Bit of Everything. Right, well, that brings us to the end of this episode with Tom Bennett on how to best kind of manage behaviour in the classroom. Um, key takeaway messages, Clark? Um, short and sweet for me. Um, really, I love the so many takeaway messages and there, so many strategies that we can acknowledge, actually. Just build them a knowledge of how to you know, set up the conditions in your class, which promotes high quality teaching and learning from the foundation of positive behaviour, which Tom spoke about. Um, but mine would be like, the, he spoke about the curse, of, the curse of knowledge, to use his words, um, and how when you become a teacher, and we're grown-ups and we can regulate our own behaviour and we know how to behave when we walk out of classes and sit down and listen to lectures um, and then leave without any issues. So I think we can sometimes expect the kids just to be able to behave in that way as well. Um, and sometimes just the most basic things like Sitting down, take your jacket off, putting your bag, putting your bag around the back of your chair, sitting facing the front, pulling your chair in. Kids struggle with that. Kids just forget to do the small things, which then leads to disruption in your lessons and distracting you from what you should be doing, which is, is teaching. And you end up um, dealing with behaviour issues. So, I would say that that would be my key takeaway message. What would yours be? A very, very good takeaway message there. It mines would be, uh, some of the things that Tom mentioned are things that I wish I had obviously learned a lot more about when I was doing my teacher training. And that's not to say my, my experience doing my teacher training wasn't good because we did a, a lot of really, really good stuff that's helped me and things that I still really um, drop on to this day in my teaching. But um, it's something that I think I could have spent more time on. Um, and it was just things like, just wee nuggets of information, like spending full lessons on like conduct and really front loading all that stuff at the start. So drilling in your, your standards and really hammering that home, even like for the first few lessons with your classes, just to really get them into 
the way thinking, the way behaving that you expect them to behave, and um, obviously that will pay dividends for t- towards the for, for the rest of the the year with them, and it's worth taking that time. So it's something that I'm definitely going to look forward to to doing and yeah, and trying, and hopefully it'll um, it'll work out for me. Yeah, I would back you up on that as well. Um, I wish there was more CPD for behaviour, just just to be prepared you more, you know, mm-hmm. rather than just getting thrown into the deep end and getting, you know, trial and error. That's just a thing we want to stay away from. It's almost like it's the most important thing, but isn't it? Like obviously the content knowledge and the subject knowledge and that is what ultimately what you're trying to teach them. But that's that doesn't even come anywhere close. You don't even come anywhere close to teaching that if you kind of get the the behaviour no. right. And it's like building it. It's like your house. You're building a house now. Personal, but you're getting the house built for you. It's like doing it with it doing the founds. Mm. I would say it's like the foundations. That would fall over. Yeah, and it, that's it's what like, happens. You, you fall over in the class. You get you become a pushover, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like so, it's like camping in the wind with any guy ropes. You're spot. You're spot I mean, aye. Go, go camping tonight. Aye. Right. Okay. Right, I've got my tent. I've not used it yet. I've got my guy ropes. The foundations are there. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us in this week's episode of the podcast. We hope you've been able to take something away that you can implement into your practice or life. If you regularly listen to the podcast, then why not leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and where we can perhaps improve. That way we can take action and further develop the Obo podcast. Until next time, we hope you have a fantastic week. Take care.